Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt. This is another podcast for The Diplomat. And with me today is a Cambodian veteran, Hans von Zogel, who uh, predates pretty much nearly all the Westerners who have lived in Cambodia. Hans, welcome to the program. Thank you, Luke. And you started out as a teacher back in the Netherlands, maths, Dutch, English. And that was in 1979 as the Vietnamese were uh, moving into Cambodia and ousting the Khmer Rouge. So different days. Yeah, that's right. My first engagement was indeed with the Vietnamese boat refugees in uh, 1980. And, uh, you know, most of them were young people. And I come from a rural, small village in the south of the Netherlands Mm. and uh, grew up in a pretty basic poor family situation and became a teacher. And there was an enormous surplus of teachers, so I was lucky to get a job. And I was a teacher for the first boat refugees and it was quite, quite uh, challenging and emotionally quite tough too. I got very close to them and I really, really enjoyed it. You know, we had in those days, this is a long time ago, right? This is like... A, <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... And so uh, there was not... No immigrants. There was, there was... I think in my hometown village, there was one... Chinese uh, family restaurant mm-hmm. and uh, one Moluccan family, you know, and the rest was you know, all white people. So it's kind of like for my first engagement with Asians, which was am- amazing. And I uh, loved the job and got them. And after a year in uh, 81, I decided to try to help some of my students to find their relatives. There was no, no internet, no communication. They had no clue where their relatives were. A little bit for possibly which refugee camp they're in. And so uh, my wife and I visited the refugee camp and trying to find some of my students, and we succeeded in that. During that trip, we saw the work and we met some volunteers and uh, saw some Dutch people who were working there Mm -hmm. as well. And we decided to go back and uh, finish our last school year and uh, go and work in refugee camps as volunteers. Mm. That's how we ended up here, basically. Right, and you'd had some remarkable jobs that put you right next to the seats of power in this country for 10, 20, 30 years. But the harshest of the work must have been in the 1980s when you had a quarter of a million Cambodian refugees living up on the Thai border. The Khmer Rouge were still backed by the Chinese and active. The Vietnamese had invaded. Yeah, it was a very tough period, really. And I learned a lot. I was very young and very eager to very quickly settle in. And I worked very hard to try to find or to try to study Thai immediately and fluently in Thai in quite a short time and in Cambodian. And so I picked up a lot of things what happened. And I got emotionally quite engaged with... uh, with the refugees, I, I can now imagine more. If, like, forty years later, I look back at this, what's happening, in, like in the Palestinian area, what yeah. it is like for refugees to live like that. I mean, I, I remember, you know, when these were attacks on on from Vietnamese tanks, often on the refugee camps, where aid workers were not out, uh, allowed in, and you know, the, the resistance or the Vietnamese, they were, they were on their own with the Thai army watching it, that it wouldn't spill over. Many, many times we had like 60, 70 camps, little small camps and a couple of bigger camps. And ultimately they merged into three big camps and like six, seven smaller scattered Khmer Rouge camps. Fun Simpak, I know back then it's called uh, 
the royalist uh, side eight and the Khmer Rouge camps, etc., etc. And it was like a really, really tough time for especially the first four years. And then the UN, I was a volunteer. The UN, they asked me to join them, the UNRWA program, United Nations Border Relief Operation. So I worked quite a while for them. And then my friend's wife, my friend Scott Lipper, and uh, Scott was a deputy coordinator in the border, a good friend. And his wife was uh, Musokuwa, she ran the Education and Social Service Program. And of course, Sakura is quite well known in this country for yes, yes. political views. Yes, and so I took over her job because they moved to Rome for the World Food Program. And uh, for the first time ever, we had the big, big boss from SCAP, the, yeah. the resident coordinator mm-hmm. overseeing UNEP, UNICEF, World Food Program, etc., etc. He's a South Korean guy. And he was interested to come to the refugee camps. He was also the boss, the big boss of Korea, of uh, the UNRWA. Mm. And so he asked to see me in his first visit. And uh, my field coordinator said, oh, okay, yes, a Dutch guy. And so I talked to him. And so Mr. his name was Y.Y. Kim. He said, so what do you think about this education situation for the people in the border? I said, let me be very straight. I think it's, it's actually disgusting. Young people are growing up in these camps already like 10, 15 years, and there's only allowed by the Thai authorities primary grade one and two. 15, 16 year olds, they have no, it's, it's like, it's like outrageous. This is like a violation of children's rights. And he was very happy with my comments and he said, come to meet me in, uh, in Bangkok and let's talk about this because I will push very hard Mm-hmm. To, um, to get that mandate amended. And we got enormous amount of money for right. education. And I, I had the last three years I worked in the board, I worked there as education coordinator for all the camps and a hell of a job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was an enormous, difficult job, but very rewarding. And uh, I kind of like had to pull the plug in 89, 90, uh, late 89. It's like, like, you know, day and night work for months. It was also the situation had changed. All the refugees were inside Thailand. The guerrillas were getting stronger and stronger. The Vietnamese troops started to pull out of Cambodia. There's more and more talks about it. And that was like the first nine years of the work, which actually I took a short break while my friend Scott Leper and his wife already had left Rome and were in Bank in Penn. Uh, right, yourself and Scott. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, both of you were advising Hun Sen for many years and the cabinet. Well, we were working. Demobbing. Yeah. The demobilization of the forces. Yeah. There was yeah. 250,000, 300,000 people returned home. Yeah. The, my first six Be years, mining. yeah, yeah. The, my first six years in Cambodia was with the Cambodian Red Cross, right? Cooperating with the International Federation of the Red Cross and and the International Red mm-hmm. Cross, but I was the sole advisor for the first years in the Cambodian Red Cross under Dr. Misa Amiri, right? And it was like you know, I came a year before UNTAC, so I was working under the state of Cambodia, and we were dealing with two hundred. 30 IDPs, internally displaced people, coming from the border, which I thought is very serious and terrible for these people, and how could this happen, and da-da-da-da-da. When I came to Cambodia, working with the Red Cross, it was a world of difference. The people were under such a poverty and stress, and uh, an enormous need of everything. 
no food, no shelter, no medication. Yes, in the border camps. They were in the border, they were fenced off in a, in a military, Thai military coordinated place. But here, they had no protection. You know, the Vietnamese people, the Vietnamese troops had pulled out already. It was the uh, state of Cambodia right, army so. who were who were trying to deal with the border. Right, Khmer yeah. Rouge getting stronger mm. and the Cape Telef getting stronger. And I was in the advisor director. It was the only help we had. Don't forget, Cambodia was, was not recognized by the UN. It was only UNICEF and the World Food Program who on a special deal were present in Cambodia. The rest, there was no UNDP, there was no WHO, there was no UNESCO, etc., etc. It's like yep. the state of Cambodia, not recognized by the UN. The UN seat was still in the hands of the coalition government of democratic Cambodia, led by the Khmer Rouge, basically. It was still Pol Pot. Yeah. But the complexion yeah. was changing. I mean, yeah, with, yeah. The, with the Vietnamese pulling out, yeah. you basically had the old factions that and the old squabbles that had been locked in at the border. Yeah. They were starting to run riot again yeah. over the country. It was yeah. basically... It was terrible, look. It yeah. was unbelievable because there were no... There, was, there were no means, you know, and the, the little means we had. I mean, the roads would take like two days or three days to get to Simria, where a lot of displaced people were as well. Right. Batambon was under attack. Uh, Kampong, we couldn't go through Kampong Tom to Simria because mm-hmm. Storm District was in the hands of the Khmer Rouge or heavily attacked continuously. It was a big chunk of the north of the country. Yeah, yeah, there was like at least a third of the country. It was right. like v- heavily under under attack. And it was a, a very difficult situation. For example, Bantim and Jay. Mm-hmm. There were no people in Bantim and Jay controlled under under the government, they, they, were all, they all had, they were displaced people in the temple around Suisisabon, the mm-hmm. capital of Antimite. It was like totally empty. And if they would still be kind of like a satellite village just outside, the Khmer Rouge would come in and burn the settlement down, which we, with the little means we had of the Red Cross, tried to help people with. It was a very serious, serious situation until finally the Paris Peace Agreement was signed in October. So the uh, right? And then Unami came preparing for the returnees. And then suddenly my plate was like, whoa, full of work. Because we were the Red Cross. We were the only institute suddenly basically recognized by the international partner as in-country. Sure. The unit or the institution where they could work with. Basically, the state of Cambodia was like one of the four government groups officially, but of course, in reality, they were they were still in there with a network in control of the local authorities, etc., etc. But the international aid was going through the Red Cross, and we had to prepare for three hundred twenty-five thousand refugees to be brought back mm-hmm. and bring them out of the refugee camps with help of the UNHCR, mainly by train, we had to establish six reception centers, one in Bantim and Jay, mm-hmm. one in Siem Reap, two in Batambong, one in Pursat, and one in Phnom Penh. And the people would get in the border and interview where do you want to go and what option do you want to take. And there was cash option. It was an option to get like a, a housing land package and initially there was thought of a two grant, etc., which never materialized. So people, a lot of them, they chose money package. So 
then they came in a temporary reception center and we had to register them and say, do you have any relatives where, etc. Then and place them off. Did they know where their relatives were? I no, mean, those days, the families were extraordinary. And, so, and a lot of people chose up. for option Banjimije or Batambong, close to the border, mm-hmm. you know, sit. You know, don't forget, I mean, these people, people of like young people of early 20s, they, they never been in Camoria. It was only the older people, and people, there were not all that many older people, who had some knowledge of Cambodia. I mean, the refugee camps were there so long, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about 79, and, uh, <coughs> and you go back to, uh, this is 91, the people, the kids of born in like, let's say 75, they'd never been or heard or saw anything about Cambodia. They were kind of they all lived in the bush on the yeah. border, surrounded in the, in by landmines and warring forces. Yeah, exactly. Then came the UN peacekeepers, UNTAC, and you were in a prime position for yeah. when they arrived. Yeah, the um, peacekeepers was, was a difficult situation too. I mean, it's kind of like very weird situation. Well, but people, I remember at the time, people were kind of yelling about, oh, they're going to spend $2 billion and that's a waste of money on Cambodia. It's too much. And now when I look back, I just think it's it's a drop in the bucket, really, when you look yeah. back well, now that, what it was. But no. back then, it was horrendously yeah. appalling conditions. Yeah. No, it was, it was like you know, the, the amounts of money nowadays is dumped in like Iraq war and in, in repatriation scenes and, you know, intervention, UN intervention scenes. Back then, it's a lot of talk of two and a half billion dollars. But it was an enormous, impressive operation because, you know, they shuttled in like, I think, 25,000 military from I don't know how many nationalities. Mm. We had people from Ghana, from Poland, from Uruguay, local police, from everywhere. Yeah. And many of them had no clue about anything in Cambodia. Many of them were working as teams together, like international police, couldn't speak to each other in a common language. And by that point, you had learned Khmer. Oh, yeah, I, I learned Khmer in the refugee camps already right. fluently. So I could, I, I did all my work with the Cambodian Red Cross in, in, mm. in Khmer. But for the people, it was like, uh, the people in Cambodia, but also the returnees, it's like bit, pretty chaotic. They had no clue what was going on, and they had uniformed people like sometimes big, black, tall American Africans yeah. to scare them. Oh, you get on the truck, blah, blah, blah. And so it's like, you know, the whole operation worked surprisingly smooth, but for the people who went through it, must have been really difficult, very difficult, going to back right. to your country, not knowing much about your country, mm-hmm. not having a background with your relatives, I mean, you know, even language was kind of like, language is a live thing. I mean, they would come back without knowing their way around. And, but I have to say, they were very patient and the local people very welcoming their compatriots back. Even the Khmer Rouge, but people didn't know who was who, basically. Mm. But it was without internal problems. It was a smooth operation in that sense. Well, when you and also the state of Cambodia, who actually still in power, mm. they tried very hard to make the best right. of it for their returning people. It wasn't like, oh, Cambodians with us and returnees. No, it was like all Cambodian citizens. Very respectful. Mm. I think it was a very respectful. When you look back, uh, a controversial point, I do remember, maybe it was reported wrong, but I do remember the uh, UN and UNTAC basically announcing that they would disarm the factions 
and then there seemed to be some kind of claim down in that they would not be disarming the factions and they certainly would not be disarming the Khmer Rouge. Should they have gone harder after the factions? Could they have disarmed the Khmer Rouge? Did they have the firepower to do that? Well, they probably could have. The Khmer Rouge was well-armed and trained, mm. but the, the UN was a very numerous... Uh, well present establishing, but it was not their mandate. Right. It wasn't simply their mandate. It was not a discussion. Should we go foreigners, including ourselves, we criticized highly the moment when the Khmer Rouge stopped them with a little soldier somewhere in the middle of nowhere trying to go to the Khmer Rouge headquarters and UNTAC. They said, okay, we cannot go in. We refuse to get in. The, the Paris Agreement Paris peace agreements were stating, had stated very clearly that it's a peacekeeping uh, operation. operation. So they were not unable to force anything on them. There were a lot of military units, I'm pretty sure, and also a lot of UN and other people who would have wanted to do that, but it was, was not in question. Right. And you can, we can speculate over the result, but as a consequence, as a consequence, well, the war it was, continued. It was, yeah, the, the, basically the war continued. Untacked troops were often under fire on Khmer Rouge troops. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the state of Cambodia was disarmed quite, quite a lot. I mean, yeah. you know, I remember very well the Dutch company in Suisseton. Everybody would move up. All the cars would stop and confiscated all the, all the weapons. And so it, there was quite a lot of disarmament. And the peace ultimately worked out, basically, but the Khmer Rouge was never uh, never uh, disarmed, and they kept their military bases. Right, and there were also efforts being made by some, certainly not all, to uh, bring the Khmer Rouge back into Cambodian politics. If I remember correctly, they opted out yeah. of the elections in 93, and I don't think that a return of the Khmer Rouge back then or later on that it would happen again, but... A return of the Khmer Rouge into Cambodian politics, I would have thought, I still think would have been absolutely catastrophic, traumatising and the wrong thing for this country. Yes, no, I think the the whole situation of all the parties but the Khmer Rouge, they played it pretty cool and just, mm. did, uh, you know, I started after the Khmer Rouge... Uh, after the big work of the of the of the Red Cross to work with a with a decentralization program, and one of the big things we were encouraged to do by the government, UNPEC had gone already, is trying to help the reconciliation, mm. bring development in areas where there's still semi Khmer Rouge control, try to get people integrated, challenge them out of the zones of the Khmer Rouge controlled areas, and that gradually happened. Also, certain factions within the Khmer Rouge deserted earlier. Sure, the defections were a big deal. Yes, yes. And that was done in a very smart and consistent way with trying not to force and not to fight, but, you know, in negotiations. A lot of it successfully worked. The Khmer Rouge gradually integrated and lost a lot of power until the last bit in 98. They split split among themselves. Yes. Yes. Well, basically left like a shag on a rock. But other than in the areas where the Khmer Rouge uh, were controlled, let's say the overlapping the dodgy areas, mm. it, was, it was peaceful, and you could and we could start working on pre-development activities. 
you know, rehabilitation of, of infrastructures. I mean, don't forget, it was all the roads and bridges were totally a disaster. I mean, you know, in the countryside, there was no, barely any roofs with uh, zinc, with zinc or roof tiles. No, it was all thatch and bamboo, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's a world of difference The now. wet season was yeah. miserable. Yeah, yeah, you know. It's mud, mud, more mud. Yeah, 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 mm -hmm. unbelievable. The traffic, the, the moving around in the country was like a big challenge, yeah. How do you think Cambodia is faring now, given all these years you've spent here? Uh, yeah, well, you know, seen? after this, 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 this whole rehabilitation and, and etc. as I mentioned briefly, I worked with, uh, with the Ministry of Interior and uh, through a lot of big donor programs like SIDA, UNDP, EU, the Netherlands, the Swiss Corporation, you know, a lot. And uh, over many years, I mean, I started that in uh, 96 to 2000 as a UN project, pilot project in Syria mm -hmm. called Decentralization, SEVA program. They have said 96 to uh, 2000. Then I moved to, to Phnom Penh back, where I became an advisor in the Ministry of Interior, who, was, who were the champions of promoting and pushing local development, decentralized empowerment of local authorities. And first as a pilot, and then they, in 2001, the first commune elections were organized. Mm -hmm. And the Cambodian government established a the National Committee for Subnational Democratic Development, which that brought us into another mode, in another period. You know, we, we could really focus on trying to bring development a sustain, in a sustainable way. You and know? this is still... Uh, and this is still uh, working. It's now, it's not donor-driven anymore. It's right. entirely taken over by the government. It's one of these very unique examples where development projects are rarely sustainable because the money dries out, the project dies out. But isn't the project supposed to be handed back to the locals? But, you know, here the, in this project, the government has taken over the whole entire financing. Right. It's run entirely through technical assistance from the government, paid for by the government and still operating more or less the way as it was designed and uh, and focused so i'm very happy with that to see that there's a, a lot of complaints left right and center but of course if you have this a nation, the funding regime that yes. basically decentralizes capital from phnom penh out into the provinces and down to the same cap yeah basically straight from the ministry of finance through the treasury straight into right. the account of the commune who manage it themselves and that's been functioning quite a long time already and now it's pretty successful also at district level mm -hmm. more complicated because it involves a lot of other ministries you know the commune level was just giving them their own budget their own rules and regulations and focus with your own budget right. back then though there was nothing else there was no nothing else somewhere. and now the government is generating quite a lot, a lot more revenue themselves right. tax systems being in place so now they, they they have they provide also development budget to the district and some to the provinces and, and i think the whole the whole development situation as far as the decentralization uh, component is working really well well it lasts another 10 15 years and there was a reliance on Western donor money that's been Absolutely. replaced by Chinese investors, 
donor money coming in from that. So it's, it's all rather opaque, so it's a bit difficult to yeah. know exactly where it's coming from. But in regards to the big NGOs, those big international names that you've worked with, what were the big mistakes they made in Cambodia? Criticisms have been many, and yeah. I don't want to harp on that, but what were the the bigger mistakes that, well, if, looking back, you wouldn't do it the same way again? Well, there's always with the, with the NGOs. It's, the, the, you know, it was very... Uh, we call brand driven. It was driven by foreigners with their philosophy and their double agenda. Often, you know, right. some of the agendas were maybe even political. Mm-hmm. Some were religious. Some was just kind of like running the show yourself. Employment for Westerners who would come in that NGO. This I'm talking about NGOs sure. are big projects. Right? Big, big packages. And, and yeah, like big and money, you know UN. Yeah, or UN and 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 and, and World Bank situations and. And ADD situations, yeah, very expensive uh, consultants who basically come in and just direct and oversee the project, which is not unique for Cambodia. It's happening everywhere in the world. Sure. But yeah, there's a lot of things which, and as, as, as a government and as authorities, there's not a lot of choice because there's a strings attached with their money. Right. It's the money, you know, now oh. it, it later moved into into kind of like uh, loans where the government is much more powerful to say we want this and that and then they control there's still development projects coming with grants for technical assistance or uh, technical support who oversee and ensure transparency and you know uh, avoid corruption and and bidding uh, processes etc etc but run by the government and now the TA the free TA component is more or less disappeared as well what do you mean by that? The, the technical, the te- the technical assistance, so the coverage of the cost for foreigners to oversee big World Bank projects or ADB projects mm. or EFAT projects, that's also gone. Yeah. So, uh, that, but the government, they, you know, being a middle-income country now, they don't get like a lot of freebies anymore. It's loans which they have to go back, pay back. So, you know, that whole situation has opened up opportunity or windows for for Chinese investors, as you mentioned. But I, I I've never seen any Chinese investors or projects being directly contributing a lot to development of Cambodia. It's been like a big infrastructure project, which mm-hmm. which is ultimately had to be as has to happen in any case, like the road construction sure, the, or a bit hydro dam, the but then run by this Chinese yes, labor. Yes, so the the benefit of those projects direct for the citizens of Cambodia, in the long run, yes, but a lot of it is also like you know, you build a big dam. Uh, it's run by the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Where's the revenue going, and how's the payment back? This. In Cambodia, still little information flow, which would give people transparency or thought or opinions about. Nobody knows which right. loan is taken from the Chinese and how payment is made back and the revenue of generated electricity, etc. This is a difficult. These are difficult issues which people are not informed about. People don't have access to that kind of information. Those days are changing. In that yes. uh, the Chinese haven't come back post-COVID. There are issues here in Cambodia from politics to the dirty words like human trafficking and corruption. But the, so some of those issues have always been here, but uh, yeah. donors have always carried on. Uh, how do you see the mix shaping up over the next few years? Perhaps return of Western governments, aid 
I, I get the feeling. Chinese. I, yeah, I get the feeling that Cambodia, over these many many years, there's there's one thing which we actually haven't discussed. Look, mm-hmm. it's like the enormous progress the young people have made with exposure in having studied overseas. I mean, there's lots of people now come there back is. with PhDs from China, from Japan, from Europe, from Australia, from America. These young people haven't been exposed. They have seen that, and they have human resources well underway of a serious development. So they, they can handle a lot more mm-hmm. themselves. And also, this younger generation coming up, they'll look likely more critical and in another way to this kind of new economic developments, whether it's China or Japan or back for the West. But I think the West will definitely, the Cambodian people and also the young generation, I think they will welcome very much back. A lot of them learned English where they didn't learn Chinese. And a lot of the the Western businesses were swept aside by the incoming Chinese around 2015, 2016. It all changed. But there's still an infrastructure in place, human assets. There are people who have learned English, who have studied abroad, who worked with Western businesses and... uh, I think there's still a place yeah. for those no, I, people. I fully you know, agree people, as you said, people are studying in Western countries. Yeah. No, and traditionally, the respect and the openness with the Western world by Cambodian citizens and also the politics has been pretty strong and open. Mm-hmm. Okay, we are at the moment in a slightly different period, but that's not necessarily going to ruin relations with the West. I mean, they can, in harmony, still have the investments and um, economic exchanges with the West while they continue to have support through China. You know, as long mm. as it's, it's, it's an economic development, I don't think there is a... Uh, it has to be either or. It can be can be end end. Right. And, uh, I mean, you put your money where your mouth is as well. Uh, you uh, were sitting by the Campot River at Villamedici, which you've basically grown out of uh, a single bedroom riverside hut, and now it's uh, kind of a magnificent four, five star resort. No, <laughs> it's not like that, but it's a nice place, and I'm, you know, it, this this is my home. Sure. I'm not. I'm still going back to the Netherlands to visit my kids. One of them lives here, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is my home, and I will stay in Cambodia for the rest of my life. And I still very engaged and love the place, etc., etc. But there is a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of water under the bridge after, since I came here. It's now forty-two years ago. I was twenty-five. I was twenty-five and I left, and I'm now yeah. turning sixty-seven. So it's a long time. I've seen a lot, a lot, a lot of changes. Ninety percent for the better. That's also inevitable mm-hmm. over such a long time that things terribly go wrong. But the overall course has been very, very positive. And you're starting to see that return of tourists post-COVID, things seem to be maybe picking up a little bit. It's picking up a bit now. I think it's an important element for Cambodian young people to be continually interacting with the West as well as with the Japanese, the Koreans, and, you know, exposure and interaction. And it's it's a good thing. And Cambodia is... popular country mm-hmm. it is in within a in a dip because of all kinds of reasons at the moment mainly covid and also things are 
getting expensive, flights are expensive, and in the world economy is at the moment a bit in a dip. But I think it'll be back. I think it'll be back. On that note, hands on Zogel, thanks very much. You're welcome, Luke. Thank you.